Hello, folks. So real life events transpired so that we're much later on this episode than intended. And I am going to take the reasonable lesson from this and not promise things about our schedule. I also wanted to make a quick correction. In this episode, I later said the song Special Death. I was speculating that it had so many listeners on Spotify because of it being on playlists and it you know being another one of those situations where the spotify algorithm magically helped it but it is in fact featured in the show american horror story so it's a completely reasonable explanation for why it is that way so you know i'm just being loud and wrong as usual which is just part and parcel of the liz ryerson experience so you shouldn't expect any more from me uh but yeah Otherwise, we're going to just keep trucking on along, and our sponsor, of course, is Imitone. I'll read a more detailed ad <laughs> for this, probably next episode, but so let's just get started. Let's get on with the show. podcast about the indie music of the 2000s and all the hipster trash that it birthed and also growing up as a child of the internet i am your co-host liz ryerson and i'm your other co-host max cohen and today we're talking about an album by the artist mira born mira yom tov zeitlin um uh, from 2002 called Advisory Committee. Woo! Yeah. Yes. Uh, so if you are a fan of indie music, um, there are a few different ways you might have heard of uh, Mira. Uh, she was part of a roster um, of the record label K Records, who we will again talk about actually in a couple episodes from now but um k records started by calvin johnson we're gonna probably talk about k records a lot over the course of this podcast yeah we probably are um started by calvin johnson uh in olympia washington um actually there's some interesting and weird stuff about k records uh apparently they've been really horrible on paying their artists uh royalties on time and have not paid them uh, very well at all. Uh, but that's a whole other separate thing. <laughs> um, Wonderful. But it is, but but K Records is one of those like labels that very much has like a cultural identity, sort of like factory records. Like it's, it's, yeah. It was initially, you know, founded to release beat happening albums, but it's gone on to be associated with the entire like Pacific Northwest indie scene. You know, early like Modest Mouse, Beck and Built to Spill albums are all on K Records. Um, yeah, the and microphones then, who we're going to be talking about some today were on K yes. Records, and and so was Mira, Mira Kimya Dawson from the Moldy Peaches as well. The Moldy Peaches. There's this other band called Old Time Religion, which isn't necessarily notable other than the fact that I saw them play live and 
college. So I, I like old time yeah. religion. They're all right. Yeah, they're fine. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, Calvin and Johnson in Beat Happening are talked about in the book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's described as sort of a cult leader <laughs> of the scene. So that should give you, I, I don't know, the guy's always creeped me out a little bit. You know, we're going to um, get into this when we talk about Mira, but the thing that's, the thing about Beat Happening, and Mira does it a little bit too, is there's this sort of like being really horny, but talking about it like a child. <laughs> Yes, there's a there's a twee. I mean, uh, twee horniness beat, is like a big vibe. Yeah, beat happening in K Records in general are really the progenitors of like twee indie music. There, <laughs> I mean, at a time when you know maybe that was less common or uh, you know uh, predominant, which is I think part of the reason they were covered in our band could be your life because most of the other bands were you know rock bands. Um, but yes. Uh, uh, Mira Yamtov Zeitlin. She was born in Philly. Um, her dad is Jewish, uh, as you might have guessed from her name. Um, she she kind of grew up in this like hippie family. Uh, apparently, she her she was raised on macrobiotic foods, which I actually had to look up exactly what that is. But that's basically like a vegan diet. Yeah, that's what a uh, um, famed shamanic poet C. A. Conrad uh, espouses. Oh, nice. Um, Apparently, her her dad also worked for Rolling Stone for a few years in the 70s. But but yeah, they were kind of hippies. They lived on a commune at one point in West Virginia. um, And uh, but they're mostly from Philly, Pennsylvania. Uh, And then she ended up going to. But yeah, and they were also kind of like an activist e family. Like apparently she was. her wikipedia is weirdly very extensive which is like you can tell from the the site it says a major contributor to this article appears to have a close connection with this subject (laughs) uh because there's some info in here which is like you wouldn't expect to see um in a you know an artist at this level but uh anyway yeah she did like you know anti-nuclear kind of stuff um yeah, uh, eventually she ended up going to Evergreen State, which is in Olympia, Washington, and has always been kind of a hippie school. I mean, famously, Matt Groening uh, of The Simpsons went there. I've known a few different people who have gone there, actually. The, or The one friend yeah. of mine who went to Evergreen now makes class eyes, so it's it's that <laughs> kind of thing. You sort of define your major, and it's a, it's sort of an arty enclave. It's, it, it, it was a, like theater for the k records scene for a while you know i just forgot that our previous episode uh conrad keely also went to evergreen state yeah. i completely forgot about that yeah um it's been that long anyway, since we recorded yeah. it <laughs> yeah and it's still not out because of uh it'll be anyway by the time you hear this it will be out yeah by the time you hear this it'll be out um but yeah, uh, apparently she also worked at a, a vegetarian campus cafe with Kimya Dawson, although Wikipedia says, citation needed. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, she was a student uh, at Evergreen Records, and I, or Evergreen State, um, and I want to read something of hers that she wrote here. So this is from a, a passage that she wrote from a, a, a book about rock and roll camp for girls, Um, She says, 
1993, I was a student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Though there was already a strong music scene in Olympia, I felt somehow ali- somewhat alienated from it. I remember going to a Bikini Kill show downtown, standing outside the Capitol Theater, and looking through the open doors at all the girls inside and just deciding to walk home. It should have been a very inclusive situation. I was a girl. I believed in the power of like-minded people gathering together. I was starting to make music, too, but I went home instead of joining in. I didn't feel cool enough to stay. Um, but then she says, the Olympia music scene was specifically supportive of young women musicians and artists getting out and being loud and heard. But I mostly just sat at home in my bedroom and wrote songs on my acoustic guitar. I didn't think my music fit in very well with the musical aesthetic popular amongst most of my peers. My songs were melodic and quiet. I didn't do much yelling and screaming. But eventually the time for that music becoming more popular did come at the end of the 90s. She got signed to K Records. Yeah, uh, it, she it's, started. It's, it's worth noting that when she's talking about not fitting in, it's because Riot Girl was happening in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, this like, is early to mid '90s. Mm-hmm. So, so that is like very much the scene is is deeply Riot Girl in the era that she's talking about, and and, and Mira, as we'll get into, is is not Riot Girl. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, eventually she started picking up bedroom recording, and and then she started hanging out at Dub Narcotic Studios, which is the studio uh, owned by Calvin and Johnson. Um, and she made friends with Phil Elvram. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Um, he's changed his spelling, but it's, it's Phil Elvram. And who was more or less kind of living at the studio at that point in time. I remember he was talking about when he was like 18, Calvin Johnson just gave him the keys so he could come in and mess around whenever he wanted. Um, yeah. So he became and, sort and of an Ersatz, you know, studio, like uh, home producer for that studio. Yeah. I mean, this is the interesting thing about Calvin Johnson is that he was so responsible for allowing a lot of indie music in the Pacific Northwest to exist and flourish. But mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, K Records hasn't really paid their royalties with people. And yeah, you know, the, the 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 image the image I get or the impression that I get is that uh, Calvin Johnson is a very encouraging person who is very bad at running a business. Yeah, I don't know. I saw him actually play live when I was at Oberlin. Um, I just found him very weird and a little off-putting, his like performance style. His but performance maybe style is me. very weird and off-putting. That's correct. But, <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, yeah, he, he was giving but chances yeah. to pe- like really young people. You know, he, he was recording Modest Mouse when they were in high school. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Uh, her first album was You Think It's Like This, But It's Really Like This. Um, she got onto K Records in 1999. That album came out in 2000. Um, you know, she started doing a little touring, but then her second album is Advisory Committee from 2002, and it's her second album with Phil Elvram as a producer. Mm-hmm. So he produced, they were kind of collaborated together, although I think I. F- she did sing on some of the early microphones albums. She, although she sang I on the, don't some, know. some early old time religion albums as well. Yeah, although I don't know if she's actually on the Glow Part Two. Like I thought that she was, but she's not actually credited. So I don't know that she is. I know she's on. Um, it was hot. Yeah, um, and I believe even the album, maybe the album before that, was had Mira on it. Uh, but yes, if uh, this album was recorded around the same time as the Glow Part Two. Um, and I, I think of them as kind of like, you know, 
cousins musically, I guess. Um, I mean, it's of the same kind of sonic milieu. Um, uh, obviously, Elvrum produced and engineered, although even though it does sound kind of similar to the microphones, she did play, Mira did play a, a lot of the instruments, maybe most of the instruments. Yeah, I think I think a lot of, like the sonic similarities are just, you know, they're using the same equipment and, you know, in terms of like there are the engineering or the production tricks that Phil Elfram's really into at the time, which like heavy panning uh, and the like um, are evident on the album, but it does, it definitely sounds like the glow part two is so maximalist and weird. And this album, like with the exception of the opening track is a lot more kind of like ramshackle. Yeah, I think ramshackle is a perfect word. I, there are moments of like a more maximalist arrangement, but it's generally not of that mode. Um, here's just something quick that uh, Mira said about Phil Elvrum. She says, I love Phil's work. I think that he's a really truthful, brilliant artist. He's also an incredibly hard worker who is very focused. That is very inspiring to me and has always been. I really appreciate that he has taken his work fully into his own hands. The fact that he is capable of producing such great work as well as being able to take care of all the business aspects is remarkable to me. It's such a far cry from my own abilities. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, I was looking up some interviews with her because the thing with Mira is she did get some positive reviews in Pitchfork. Her next album, Come On Miracle, was a Best New Music uh, back in 2004. But uh, she hasn't really released that much in the 2010s and i can imagine she probably isn't doing music full-time anymore just guessing yeah her last album um, i believe was 2014 i think she had an album in 2018 and there just is nothing on wikipedia i think it was like a an album of demos or something oh oh she's she, um, she and she had a reissue campaign fairly recently like she reissued um uh you think it's like this but it's really like that uh, but it's really yeah. like this uh, recently. And then um, Advisory Committee and Come On Miracle were on reissued on vinyl like last year. Yes, you can still buy them on vinyl via Bandcamp. Uh, so if you like this album, totally recommend it. And you should. Um, I think it's a good album. It's not my favorite, but it's good. Yeah, so I picked this one because we're going 2002. And I, I guess we can talk about the background. Uh, so... I um I think my friend in uh college uh who I was still like living in Oberlin where I went to college at this time but I had like graduated but I was still hanging out with my friend who still went there and she was queer and she liked you know she liked the kind of <laughs> twee K records kind of stuff like that was of her and she was yeah um so I think she's the person who told me about Mira, or maybe I just knew about Mira because, you know, she had collaborated with the microphones. And I knew that, like, her, like, she was one of the few artists who was, like, out as queer, like, um, you know, which actually she's she's married to a guy and has a kid now. But, you know, at the time she was, uh, you know, dating. Well, and it's, it's like with Slater Kinney, I think, and maybe just uh, indicative of the uh, atmosphere in Olympia, you know, which she said was very led by women and dominated by women. So uh, I think a lot of this stuff wasn't as, um, you know, uh, 
stigmatized as it would have been outside of that, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago. Of course, now, like, every prestige indie artist is queer, it feels like. But um, that was definitely not the case. And I remember, like, listening to her and being like, oh, this is, this is like, somebody who's, a, like, a, a lesbian or, you know, queer who I, you know, I'm actually into this music. It just felt like, you know, especially as I was, like, starting to transition, it just felt like there wasn't much of that so um so i think that's one of the reasons why i started listening and i yeah i got into advisory committee and i honestly like i liked it but i kind of forgot about it until recently when i was looking up more stuff to do and i'm you know sort of feeling like we should get more female artists on here um so uh so yeah but i always liked the album i never really investigated further i'm not sure why this is the album that i downloaded i think maybe it was just because of cold cold water yeah this this Uh, was like the the big i mean you know come on miracle got the bigger pitchfork review but my the way i remember is people at the time people were talking about like this is her classic album this is her masterpiece mm mm-hmm so, so what's your background with it? Yeah, and Mira in general. Yeah, so it, it's well, one. It's it's funny talking about Mira as being like a, a queer artist because I was reading through um, reviews and the Pitchfork review of uh, "You think it's like this, but it's really like this" is like talking about how she, you know, there aren't enough like non queer women voices out there, <laughs> and she was considering <laughs> Mira as one of them. She's, you know, I think the line is like, "I'm too." boy crazy for the mr lady bands um (laughs) which is what a what a what a what an artifact of an era no i got into mirror because i was really obsessed with the microphones it's like how i got into the silver juice because i was obsessed with pavement um you know when you're uh when you are really into the microphones uh mira just comes up because phil elvram produced it um yeah and so uh, I, I also started with advisory committee. Um, I can't remember. Again, I, I think my memory is that like people saying like, this is the masterpiece. This is the album to get. Um, and I ended up getting, uh, you think it's like this and come on miracle. Cause those are the only albums that were out at the time. Um, and you know, it's, it, I had a very like brief, but intense phase with her music, uh, because I don't generally like the genre um, I don't generally like acoustic singer-songwriter music. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's terrible. Uh, and so <laughs> it's it's also uh, somebody in one of these reviews called it coffee house songstresses. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and so uh, the fact that this appealed to me through that, you know, I think speaks a lot to Mira's sort of unique uh, songwriting voice. I especially, I really, and I still love. Uh, I think it's like this. You think it's like this, but it's really like this which has this very homespun uh, bedroom pop aesthetic, you know, like a decade before that would become a term. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's always been like a really fun, like intimate album for me. We'll get into it. I feel like advisory committee kind of trails off towards the end. Um, Yeah. I think it gets a little too clever with some of the, uh, the one-off songs, but we can talk about that. But I've always really liked Mira because, you know, she is an acoustic singer-songwriter who is unabashedly strange and um, mercurial and, like, sort of her own thing um, in a way that, you know, I didn't see... A whole, it, it's not like Kimya Dawson, right, where you're, like, doing acoustic singer-songwriter work, but you're swearing and talking about balls or whatever. 
Uh, it's like um, uh, a songwriting style that feels closer to, you know, maybe like Cat Power or early Liz Fair. Um, yeah, I was thinking Liz Fair, early Liz Fair too. Um, it's it's just, it's that kind of uh, atypical song structure that I really love hearing. And, and especially like, um, the shorter songs have this almost like one foot in the grave quality to them where they feel like, uh, of the uh, album one foot in the grave. Yes. 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 Oh, okay. Which was, I think produced by Calvin Johnson or he's at least on the album, the Beck album, one foot in the, one of the oddest things to be like sold on major. Well, I guess not as odd as stereo pathetic soul. Yeah. Manure, stereo, but stereopathic still. soul manure is a whole other thing, but like, uh, but you know how One Foot in the Grave just feels like a series of bedroom sketches? Yeah, I like that album. I, lo- yeah. I think it's a great album. And I, that's also why I really like um, the, you think it's like this, but it's really like this. And also the smaller moments on advisory committee have that vibe to me. Um, so, I, you know, there's not a lot of other places you can get that. So I really, I really loved Mira at the time. And then like, I've gone maybe like a decade without thinking about it. So it was really mm-hmm. fun to revisit. Um, kind of the same for me. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, she just stopped releasing music and like I was in a very different part like phase of my life. Uh so it's 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 been it's been really fun to revisit uh this stuff. Yeah, it's it's sort of like the tail end of being into the specific kind of indie folk, indie rock type music for like early 2010s. Like I got into her, her a little bit in Cat Power and stuff, but then I kind of switched into being more into electronic music and pop music. So mm-hmm. like art pop music. So, but yeah. Um, yeah. I would describe Mira as like, and, and like, this isn't, I don't know. Like I would describe her as like likable and like her vote like her vocal style is like kind of cute you know uh but like not someone with like a lot of range she has but she has a sort of like like a more measured version of a joanna newsom voice like when she reaches for it she can definitely hit that kind of drama but she rarely does she's not like a musician's musician maybe at the same level like she's more of a self-taught type person than joanna newsom who is a little more baroque and ambitious but for sure although cold cold water definitely has like joanna yeah. newsom vibes so let's talk about that that's the first track and it kind of is the standout track of this album although i don't know if it's actually my favorite it's, de- but- it's definitely not my favorite but it's the most it's the epic one right it's five minutes long it has these different stages. It's got this Ennio Morricone kind of uh, cowboy oh, yeah. drama. The, the like the yeah yeah. As like, it's the longest song on the album too, which is kind of strange. It was the anchor song for the EP that came out before this. Oh, there is a Cold Cold Water EP that was, um, you know, beloved and was centered around this song. So. Um, you know, so much of Mira's music is like a collection of like scraps and trinkets. You know, it's like opening a junk drawer. Uh, this is a, a a Mira song that feels like I am making a song. Like this is a piece, a singular piece. It 
it's a little weird because it's longer than everything else in the album, and I think it sets <laughs> expectations for something that the rest of the album is not, uh, which is a little strange. But it's a great song. I mean, uh, I mean, not only do you have, I, I think, just in, from a songwriting level, it's like a lot of her songs feel like they're not quite complete. They're like kind of, I mean, in in kind of a Liz Fair mode, they're like sketches. They're not quite like a complete written song but i think this is one of her you know best written songs so it makes sense that it was like you know translated to um this kind of style but it is like um i don't know it's just a little strange compared to um the rest of the album i i i I say it's bjorkish i think i think there's a little bit of uh bjork in here although obviously she doesn't have the the range of a bjork to pull this off which is probably why there's more there aren't more songs like this, but um, it's yeah. it's a weird way to open the album because it's such a it's so atypical. It's also where you get the most like Phil Elvrum production touches. Yeah, you got the the organ from you know I could not get through September without a battle. Like there's that um, you know that the moon dramatic. Yeah, no, that's the that's the glow part too. That song. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, oh my god, yes cut that i don't want Uh, i'll cut that i don't want to look like (laughs) like a fake gamer girl with indie music (laughs) Uh, yeah we we both i'm sure have listened to the glow part too a lot so yeah i you know you know i'm thinking of the moon there's a when we get to um mount saint helens that's a song that always reminded me of the moon anyways yeah we got a we got some strings too like some cello or something going you know like there, there are some strings on this album although like there's one track in particular that I think, you know, was recorded more, um, I guess, conventionally. But generally, like, it is used, like I said, it's really like a cousin to the Glow Part 2. Like, if you like the kind of fidelity and production and the kind of, like, I think this is a little bit more ramshackle in terms of, like, like the beats are obviously not on a grid, you know. Yeah. They're, like, much more, you know... Which, you know, I'm, if you're... I mean, as I understand it, like, Dub Narcotic is a... It's an analog studio, or was at the time. Yeah. And and I imagine these were probably fairly self-recorded. Like, I imagine it was probably mostly uh, Mira and Phil Elvrum doing this. So, um, you know, in addition to any of the other musicians that they brought along. Um, yeah, the yeah. Uh, the credits list for, like, all the instruments Mira plays on this album is insane. <laughs> yes, it's like it, it looks like a joke. There's so much there's so much shit on it. I think like I think that's what's interesting about the song in this album is like yes, she does definitely have a very like indie girl coffeehouse voice, but like um like she is trying to stretch and like go for different kind of extremes, different genres. Like there's even a part, you know, when the when the drums when the drums really crash like heavy and she does like a, 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 a whale, you know, like a scream, oh, yeah. which is probably like she, the, you know, the emotional peak of the album. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's just, it's not folky. It's like acoustic. It is a singer songwriter, but it is not like folky or jazzy. It is very like, um, film soundtrack. It does have the Ennio Morricone thing with the like, yeah, you know, for like sure. The, it, it progresses in a really natural way too, which is not common. Like a lot of her songs will take some weird left turns, um, which is something I like. Yeah. But cold, cold water 
has this very organic progression. Um, yes. That, again, yeah, adds I think, to that epic feeling. I think it's a- arranged a little bit more smoothly because um, there are other tracks where the musical transitions feel like a little abrupt. Are really like and- a hairpin, which I, I like more because it's interesting to me, but I can see like... Um, it's a it's a little clumsy. Yo, sometimes. Oh, it's totally clumsy. So it just comes down to whether or not you think clumsy things are charming. <laughs> but yeah, Cold Cold Water really stands out on its own as a song. So even if you don't like uh, or don't listen to the rest of this album, I would definitely recommend checking this song out. Although you know, I do like the rest of the album too. But. I, I I and I would I would argue you know again I think there are better songs on the album, but Cold Cold Water is I think the most immediate yes yeah it's definitely the one that stood out to me i think i um when i first heard the album i wanted it to sound more like that song but you know i eventually got into the rest of the album okay so the next song is after you left it's a pretty like short track um actually i think the sequencing on this album is generally pretty good i do too i i think again i it feels like it runs out of steam towards the end yeah but i love you know after you left and um recommendation are the ones with like kind of synth vibes yeah they this feel like early magnetic feels songs Oh, I love early Meg. I fucking love. Um, what's the the name of the the um, Get Lost? Get, get lost. lost. Get Lost is one of the best lo- albums ever made. <laughs> I love that. We we have got to do Get Lost. It's such a good fucking album. But like, oh, that album is so good. But yeah, that album and like um, Wayward Bus and Distant Plastic Trees. Like, it's got that sort of like um, sketchy electronica, you know. There's something yeah, there's not much. There's there's like a just a drone that goes boom, 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 boom. You know, it's a it's not a super developed song, but because it's not very long, it's um, it's not meant to be. You know, the nice thing about these short, sketchy songs is that they they add up. You know, they they create a sort of texture um, between like these high points that. Um, makes the album really good to put on if you're like on a bike ride or something or driving um, because it, it creates um, mood, not in an ambient sense, but it's almost using like pop songwriting uh, conventions to create an ambient mood. Just through- There's almost like a, an ASMR quality to her voice. And I think yeah. it like, for the for these like softer songs, I mean, it, it the the droning synth line is a little it's a little like weird and spooky, but it's not like you know scary necessarily. It has this kind of like slightly like uh, charming, meditative, slightly mysterious, uh, maybe slightly coy like uh, feeling to it. I guess is how I describe I th- it. I think that's yeah. I think texture is a big part of it. Like a lot of the sounds being used. Um, are very textural and give a certain um, grit or uh, 
you know, low end or or um, uh, roughshodness to the songs that that is as much a part of them as any like actual melodic songwriting. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's it's of the guided by voices lessons of songwriting is like uh, if you don't outstay your welcome, uh, then people will tolerate you, a lot you, more. You can do you can do all kinds of dumb shit. You can do pimple you can, zoo you if can, you want. <laughs> you can you can do gold hick. <laughs> Um yeah. um yeah yeah no it's true hey listen um, um but uh okay uh make it hot make it hot uh so obviously the 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 most noticeable part of the song is the lyric take me over and over and over again that that kind of twee horniness Yeah, apparently she did write a song about uh, strap-ons at some point earlier in, early in her career. I mean, she was dating women also well, for you think, a while. You think it's like this, but it's really like this. It's a very horny album. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Gone to Sugaring has some pretty like blatant clit-sucking imagery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I said I, I said a dorm room slash Liz Fair thing. <laughs> for sure. It, it's one of those songs that's like, it's so simple and pleasant, and then you get to the make it hot where the vocal melody is so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a, again, it's a heel turn in the song um, that I feel like kind of makes it, you know. Um, it's fun that we're doing yeah. this now because it's a very autumnal album, and I think part of that is these sort of. Oh, absolutely. Is these sort of like uh, these acoustic songs that kind of build up, turn around on themselves, and just kind of fade away. I think the the interesting thing is it starts off pretty like, you know, Starbucks uh, <laughs> coffee core. Um, you know, it's a little bit more ramshackle and a little bit more like, you know, sitting inside with the heat on kind of, yeah. uh, you know, cozy. But but then uh, and, and this is true, like a lot of this, um, the the uh, arrangement gets a little bit more interesting. And there's this like echoey, detuned high piano part mm-hmm. that I think is actually the most memorable part. Like the piano riff. Oh, it's is, so like good. the most memorable part of this song for me. It's again, there's a very like precise use of texture on a lot of the songs that like makes something that would be that could be dull. Like I think there there are versions of these songs that could be very, very dull. Um, but because of their kind of brevity and atypical structure and the choices of instruments. And I think there is something about the, not the arrangements, the arrangements feel very mirror, but the choice of texture that feels like Phil Elfram's influence, like mm-hmm. the decision to do this part on a, on a, you know, an organ pedal or on a detuned piano feels like Elvrami, that, that idea of like every random instrument in the studio being a, a possible texture note. Yeah, it's also possible that 
you know, this was her idea and because she saw Phil doing this stuff and she's like, I'm going to, I need to, you know, I need to up my game. Well, I'm going to do more of this stuff. And also, you know, the impression I get about Dub Narcotic Studio is it's just full of shit. There's just a bunch of random shit mm-hmm. in it. So I, they almost had to close the studio, I think, at one point more recently because of the royalties issues. I'm not sure exactly what the status of That's a things bummer. are. Thinking of K Records as a business is a bummer because, you know. It's important to, I think, a lot of twee queer lives, including my own. It's important, although, yeah, like <laughs> a lot of artists who are no longer with them don't have positive things to say because of the royalties issue. Yeah, and um, I, I don't blame them. I mean, they, they strike me as sort of like a um, early sub pop kind of thing when they were they didn't really have the business structure to handle uh, the sales they were getting. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> A story for another time. And it's also true of, unfortunately, of, you know, a lot more indie labels than you would like. Oh, uh, absolutely. Whether you hear about it or not, you know. Uh, it's it's um, hard to do. It's hard yeah, to do. Yeah, I think the only reason that the article got written about it is because of Kimya Dawson's Facebook posts. Oh, I didn't, <laughs> she, I didn't see about that. She's like, I'm unfriending anybody who po- who is friends with um, <laughs> who is friends with Calvin Johnson. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, uh, now we get to my favorite song on the album. Mine uh, too, Mount St. Helens. <laughs> yeah, I fucking love um, Mount St. Helens. <laughs> I think it's because the the opening part of the song is actually my favorite part of the just the opening line where she says, "From the morning when I." Rise from my bed till the evening when I lay my head in slumber. Oh, the loss of you does wreck my days, leaves me with a violent hunger. I will never be free from you. It feels like, um, it just feels like I don't know. It 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 feels like one of those mel like the opening melody feels like one of those melodies that's been with you forever. Yeah, you know, it has that like traditional folk song thing to it there that just feels like iconic or whatever. I don't know, but it's also strange. You know, it, it's like a chord at a time. It's um, a fairly winding progression. Um, I love the I love the beginning. I but I also I think what I love about the song is that it's. It's a simple vamp that's really builds up steam. It feels like kind of a snowball rolling, rolling down a hill. There had been a great disaster And the hot winds came just after A tremendous shock was felt Survivors often tell The trees all hit the ground Death was all Yeah, there's the the strumming guitar. I mean that that's again a thing that I feel like a, a few microphone songs from this era do, where it's like she's singing like da 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 da. You know, there's like a few lines. Oh and yeah, there's, there's a lot like of headless a, horsemen in it. You know, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot headless of horsemen is a great yeah. She also says, "You knew what you had to do," which I think is a microphones rest uh, reference. Where you know, in one of the songs, he's like, "I knew what I had to do," or something. You remember that? Uh, is I, it Headless Horseman that he says that? 
I can't remember. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it, it's hard to. It's funny because now that we're talking about this, I can't peel apart my memories of what's the glow part two and what's this. Because uh, I was I was obsessed with them at the same time, right? Like I got into oh, this. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Because of Glow Part Two, um, so I'm, I'm like, maybe, yeah, maybe, or was it, uh, you know, whatever. Um, they were recorded around the same yeah, time in the same studio, so so it's not it's not hard to um, make that comparison. But I do feel like the way it builds feels very Mira. You know, I think Phil Elverum would usually like keep the kind of same tenor of voice and then just blow out the speakers at the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas this is a more kind of gradual um, building of tension and steam yeah. in a way that like, it's just really satisfying to listen to. It feels emotionally yeah, yeah. valent in a way that she doesn't always hit. Yeah, it's she strums for a while, and then you know the the beats when they the like weird industrial you know beats uh, when they fade in they kind of fade in gradually. Um, yeah, so it like it's kind of a thing that overtakes them, and it you know anytime like a wave of sound fades in and fades out, you could you could picture it as being like a mountain, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> It's like a, it's a way that like music often represents mountains is by having like climbing and you know lowering of of sound or and it, pitch or whatever. But it, it works, you know. This is a very um, scenic album. You know, we're talking about textures and we're talking about sort of evocative. Sounds. And we're talking about the Pacific Northwest. We're talking about the Pacific Northwest. Fucking trees and mountains. I lived there for a couple years. Yeah. Um, it you know it feels very uh, environmental. Um, yeah, and then um, she, she has a little bit more of that like echoey piano, which is one of my favorite textures of this album. And it sounds really good on the. It's when it comes in, it feels really good. Um, and then there's like a chorus. To this song and the chorus actually feels like earned. Um, it feels like it. You know, even though things like drop out when she sings the da 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 da. You know that part like. Uh, which is a little bit of like a Disney uh, melody line come to think of it. But like um, it, it feels like earned. It doesn't just feel kind of random. Like it felt like the song did enough to like earn that, uh, which some of the other songs in this album, I don't feel as much if that makes sense. No, um, no, I don't know how much of the, there's, there's definitely some songs that where it's more sudden um, and not necessarily in an effective way, but this song, you know, it's one of the longer songs on the album. Like it's, it's one of like three songs that breach the three minute mark. Um, Mm -hmm. so it has the time to build into that. Yeah. And you know, it ends out, uh, I think a lot of these songs have nice little endings where it kind of like recedes and she, she does, she does some like, while she's not like a super dynamic singer, she does do some nice like harmonies or like harmonizing with herself throughout the album. Yeah. I think there's, and I think there's some, she's really good at working with group vocals, which we'll get into later. Um, Mm -hmm. Like they're used in a very cool way on the first album and and here as well uh, later on. Um, Yeah. Mount St. Helens is such a good song. Mount St. Helens, great track. I, I actually kind of rediscovered this album because I was looking through my old last FM, like tracks that I liked, uh, you know, that I had hearted, 
And this track came up and I was like, I don't even remember how this sounds. And then I opened it and then it instantly like hit me and I was like, oh yeah, I really love this song. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, this is definitely my most played. This, whenever I revisit this album, I usually will just listen to this song. Um, yeah. Although, great song. Although I also, you know, and I forgot about it, but I, I really like recommendation too. Like again, it's got that when early I, magnetic <laughs> fields vibe. When I originally downloaded this album, this track wasn't labeled as like a track number. So it was just like at the end as its own like thing, <laughs> which is kind of funny. I saw somebody on like a, I think it was Rate Your Music or something say that they constantly put the song on mixtapes. And it, it is like kind of the perfect like transition song for a mixtape. For sure. You know, it's it's very bedroom pop, like of the mold that you would think of it as in the two thousands. You know, there's like this, just this beat and like you know little hand claps. Um, although there's the like off the grid giant drum sound, uh, which is like a little more clumsy for this track. Uh, but you know, that's part of the general uh, vibe of uh, her work with Phil Elvrum and and his work and too. So. Um, yeah, it, it's, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a fun song. It's, it's the song that sounds the most like, uh, you think it's like this, but it's really like this. Cause it's, you know, it's a sketchy little pop song. Um, and it's fun and it's short and it's great. <laughs> yeah. I don't like the ending quite as, but it's fine though. It's like, like I said, it's the, it's the gold hick thing. <laughs> to use that track i guess pimple zoo is the one everyone brings up because that has such a funny name it's well it's yeah although I, it's I, better than pimple zoo it's better than pimple i do kind of like the the hook in pimple zoo if, if you can call yeah it no that. but it, it is better than pimple zoo for sure <laughs> yeah i'm just using that as an example because i think guided by voices perfected the art of the of the transition track. Yes. Um, <laughs> and also made many bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> I know you really hate hit. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, uh, I think that song is okay, but it does ha- use the, uh, <laughs> a certain words in it. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, the next track is Body Below. And this is an interesting one because it's it's mostly doesn't really develop. It's kind of like an ambience, uh, moody track, kind of like After You Left, except much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. It, it sounds a little bit like spooky and cryptic, though. I think this is actually like a good October. I don't know if we're actually going to release. OK, yeah, it'll still be October when we put out this episode. So, yeah. <laughs> This will be our de facto Halloween episode. Absolutely. Nothing spookier than advisory committee. It's got, yeah, it's got that, that low kind of bass pulse and some, uh, some really fuzzy guitar noise kind of going on. I, again, I think it's a little long for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like even backwards, like the guitar riff might be, might be backwards. Oh, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, there isn't, I I mean again her vocals on this have a little bit of like um have a little bit of like a um you know it, like the um what's that album Wind's Poem by Mount Erie like the like I'm whispering in the midst of the noise like I'm your I'm this like grounding human presence in the midst of the the chaos not as heavy as in that album but like again like they kind of have like an ASMR quality to them. I, I don't know. I th- I feel like this was a, a common thing with certain artists like this. Like I know it's definitely the case with some, 
especially like earlier Sufjan Stevens albums where his voice kind of has this like, I don't know if it's the way it's produced. It kind of has this like shimmering <laughs> feeling to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's um, absolutely was a thing. <laughs> so I don't have much else to say about Body Below really. I mean, it's a, it's a nice, like I, it's kind of something you like, if you're, if you like, if you made a mix of, songs that are you kind of put on in the background like if i were playing this in the midst of like listening to flying saucer attack or some artist like that <laughs> i could imagine like putting it there it's a it's a perfectly fine song uh, but it doesn't like really stand out um it's a you know but the but the ambiance is kind of nice and i like the sound of her voice on this one um yeah you know again it's as the album goes on um the songs become more and more textural and less and less songy. Um, mm-hmm. The it, it becomes very much about like, do I like the particular texture that this song is doing? Um, yeah. Well, speaking of which, uh, let's go to the sun. I <laughs> the funny thing about this this track opens with like a very ominous like bass notes just played over and over again and it's so the glow part two i mean it's not like the foghorn sound but it basically is like a guitar imitating the foghorn sound of the song is like a you know i don't know it's just kind of like an indie folk girl song i this is actually probably my least favorite track on the album um yeah i you know i think it's fine it's i i like when it kind of blows up um, i it I don't like I don't like that the I the I am the sun but it it just doesn't feel like quite earned it feels kind of abrupt like I think I don't know. I just it feels a little bit contrived, like the that second section. Um, but I don't know. And I also just don't like the the song, like the first part as much as some of the other like strummed folk songs either. So, although it does have like this very like haunting electronic shimmering electronic piano riff at the end that i do like because it reminds me of granddaddy oh yeah 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 (laughs) i was such a big granddaddy fan when i was a teen we are definitely going to do a granddaddy episode at some point i know somebody from the games world who's a big granddaddy fan who i might want to have on as a guest um the the main thing i remember about granddaddy is they had a song that was on windows xp that came with it what really the crystal lake yeah Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, and then I saw them do an in-store. Like I saw, I think what might've been their last show. Because <laughs> uh, oh, I was working God, at a record yeah. store where it was happening. Um, but yeah, their drummer died, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like when they were touring several years back. But any anyway. Um, so that'll be fun. That'll be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
but yeah it actually like doing this episode it is like and just talking about it right now it does make me realize how much this her music like overlaps with a lot of the stuff that i was into as a teen like you know like obviously the microphones but getting a little bit of granddaddy and also got a little bit of like elephant six a little bit of elephant uh, six a little bit of the eels in there like there's a there's a whole twee indie universe <laughs> Yeah, I guess I didn't. I, I guess if it were called Twee when I was a teen, I would have been annoyed by that. But, um, but yeah, I guess it does. I guess a lot of the stuff I liked was kind of in that vein. Um, but yeah, uh, the next track we have is Advisory Committee. This is probably my second favorite track on the album. I talked with you inside my head the way I have forgotten back quickly prepare it and First of all, it starts off with the the guitars like double or triple tracked, so it sounds more. It's like more of a full sound because I would say like this album, it sounds a little ramshackle, and part of the reason why is a lot of the kinds of production techniques that you would hear, you know, on a more uh, on a more on a higher budget either indie album or pop album or whatever does stuff like you know at the beginning of this track where the sound is much thicker, and normally a lot of the songs don't have that but yeah this song starts with like that guitar riff that's that's much thicker because of you know the way it's like i think it's also just more melodically developed than something like the song body below like it is a it is a songier guitar part yeah and we we have the steel drums that (laughs) show up and the the, steel drums are so cute (laughs) yeah as played Um, by mira i I, I like the (laughs) yeah I like the the main melody too. The da, 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 da. yeah, a little bit more than. Um, and I will say, I think and, I think the, to your point, I like the explosion at the end of this better than the one in the sun. Because it feels really well, like it it like first of all, the explosion of drums comes in a little more organically, like right. as the song is moving, and it comes in a couple of times too. Um, so it feels like more of like a full arrangement. It feels like a full, you know, and and her like uh, her, um, uh, it's it's so funny. This this also overlap. I used to be really into like a certain kind of sixties music, and her like echoey vocals where she you know goes high up and goes, you know, like that part with the reverb and whatever. Like like you said, is very autumnal. It has that certain like feeling to it the the rushmore soundtrack <laughs> oh yeah yeah that sort of um village green stuff yeah 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 exactly um and so that in addition to the melody just being more interesting in addition to like the explosion coming in it just feels like a well-developed uh arranged track i think oh yeah no i i think this is um maybe <laughs> Maybe my last favorite track on the album. I, I don't think the album go, turned shitty after this, but I don't know if there's any other songs that I like as much after this. I don't like as, uh, the songs after this as much, but there's two that I like um, a, a pretty good amount. So, 
Um, but also, yeah, I, I, I wrote down here, I said, uh, pretty good year burst with the Johns. <laughs> Anytime there's like an explosion of dynamics, it's just uh, uh, for, uh, you know, 20 seconds or whatever, yeah. I compare it to pretty good year I, by Tori Amos. I mean, it's a, it's a template. Like, I, I, it, it, it communicates the idea. <laughs> Um, I, I think that what's funny about this is it's only three minutes long, but it feels more developed than, you know, some of the longer songs. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Good track. Um, next track we have by far by an orders of magnitude more. It's gotta be getting into playlists or something. Most, most listened to on Spotify. And I think this is one of those fucking algorithm things. The same thing would happen with that galaxy 500 song strange or like, you know, the, the pavement song, uh, harness your hopes or something like that. Yeah. That is my only guess. And I guess I, I, I can imagine this being on a, like uh spoopy indie, like spoopy twee indie, you know, like uh play. Cause it has that kind of like, you know, it has like a theremin, but it is in, it has like a, a xylophone playing the lines, but it is a very like Starbucksy kind of sounding song. It's a, it's a perfectly fine song. I just like, it didn't stand out to me the many times that I listened to this album before I looked at the, the Spotify playlist. So the two by far most listened to songs on here are this and the garden, neither of which I would consider anything close to a highlight. They both feel, again, they're both kind of texture pieces. They're both kind of, they pick a place and they stay in it. Um, so it feels extremely weird. that <laughs> These are the ones, uh, by by orders of magnitude, like these are are millions of plays as opposed to like a hundred thousand. I just think it's like a more conventionally written song among this in this mold for this song, and maybe that's how it ended up because that's what they like. I know when Damon Krakowski of Galaxy Five Hundred like wrote an article about it. Uh, he said that like one of the reasons why that song Strange ended up on this playlist was because of. Like some, the algorithm determined determined it to be like a lot of other things. Um, so it's possible that that was the case. With this, also has a like a, like I said, this um, I can imagine TikTok teens like listening to a song like this because it has that kind of like spooky theremin, kitschy. Like there's like the haunted carnival thing going on at the end with the like accordion. Um, I mean, I like theremins, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I do too. It's just, but it just, it doesn't, it just doesn't do a whole lot. And I think the, the textural songs on here work best when they are strung between, uh, when they are short one and, and two, when they are strung between more melodic works. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think this album is maybe just a little too long. I don't think maybe I, I don't I, think it has I think enough. They could probably like song cut out like two songs. To, yeah. To work with the, the textural parts. So, I actually do like the garden quite a bit just because it sounds, it sounds more like, like a pop song, but it's really weirdly ramshackle. Like the distorted drums are not on a grid at all. Um, but the texture is kind of different. Uh, just the weird, you know, panned distorted drum. That's really, and like the bass, like there isn't much going on. No, it's sort of, Uh, um, it kind of reminds me of like King, well, King cruel, which is a much more recent band, but like there is a certain, like, post-punk death march quality to it <laughs> mm-hmm. um or even like um the beat happening on black candy 
uh, has that vibe as well. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I'd consider it songier. It definitely has a more, it has a beat in a way that the other songs don't. I think the vocal hook is a little more like I can imagine this being adapted into like more of a conventional pop song, which is maybe why apparently this song uh, ended up on the TV show. So you think you can dance, uh, which is just bizarre to me. charted the u.s uh at uh, number 45 in the u.s top heat seekers chart so it was like kind of a free kit because of it being on tv that's um, yeah i wonder which uh what so you think you can dance is another like simon fuller like you know um reality tv show jojo siwa is a judge on there now oh my gosh uh, apparently i i I, I'm willing to admit I, I cannot. There's a certain amount of pop culture that I just cannot keep up with anymore. Oh, there's a certain amount of pop culture that I just cannot deal with. <laughs> I tried to watch The Mask Singer at one point because I was like, oh, this is kind of a neat idea. But then I was like, no, this just has that same like aspirational kind of like celebrity kitsch to it that I just really don't like. Um, uh yeah i the one thing i know about anyway. the mass singer singer was when rudy giuliani was on it and ken jong walked off i thought that was cool uh, yeah Good well maybe the only cool thing that's happened on that show yeah. weirdly like robin thick is like maybe the you would think that he would be like the most annoying part of the show but he is one of the the least annoying parts of the show you know, the, the vibe i get from robin thick is that he has been chastened by his experiences <laughs> Yeah, is now a fairly uh, normal person. The 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 YouTuber Todd in the Shadows did a um an episode on his album Paula, which was like a major flop. Yeah, I saw and that. like, <laughs> it's like you could almost there are actually good songs on there. You could almost say like it could be reclaimed in a weird context. I'm not I'm not saying like uh, not making excuses for Robin Thicke in general as an artist, but no, you know, he, he uh, compared it to here, my dear, which I think is definitely a possibility. Yeah. For it to have um, that, that collective. But yeah, the garden, uh, I think it's an interesting song. doesn't really fit in with the rest of the album, but I, I, I don't know. I like the weird ramshackle, drums yeah and Um, also if you're here for for our halloween episode it is it's got it's a little spooky a little bit spooky and then light the match (laughs) i wrote cabaret kitsch yeah so this is maybe why i dislike the latter half of this album is because the garden and light the match together make it sound make it feel like she's going for sort of a milk toast tom waits thing (laughs) Yeah, this is a bit of a yeah. You're right. Like that, it's that one it's a bit of a Starbucks. <laughs> it's about a bit of a Starbucks girl Tom Waits thing, right? Which is a a bad vibe for Mira, and I think a bad vibe for society. Um, like, yeah, it's so funny. Like, I I remember, it, like, like per- Pearl Jam. I, this is a weird comparison point, but like Pearl Jam. 
uh, every once in a while would do like a soft rock song or like some song that was like very genre that just didn't really work. Oh yeah, like Bugs. Um, <laughs> wh- which song? Like Bugs. Oh, bu- well, Bugs is mostly stupid. I'm thinking of Around the Bend. Sure, sure, sure. But the last song on No Code, it makes me think a little bit of that. It's just Although, like No Code's it's already a little too kitschy. I really like No Code as an album. I'm- it's oh, that's a good album. Yeah, yeah I, I put it on my best <laughs> albums of the '90s. List. I, 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 I uh, would, I would agree with that. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, there's that the one song that feels even on a, a fairly ex- you know quote unquote experimental album for them, like not just different but a bad fit yeah and and this is a little bit that i mean she's like you know she's she's trying to put her all into it i think she seems into it but it is a little bit like if i heard you know like uh it just it's a little bit amanda palmer i was gonna like say it's heard dangerously an, <laughs> close to amanda palmer <laughs> if i heard a whole album like this i'd be like oh this is overbearing and just like Ugh. well it's just it's just not you know, God, God bless her for experimenting, right? If you don't, if she wasn't experimenting, we wouldn't get cold, cold water. Um, but it's just, it's just not, it just doesn't work. It's not, it's not, yeah, a, look. It's, it's not a good look. It's recorded pretty well. And like, it could be worse. Um, I think for that reason, maybe I like it a little bit more than the sun. Uh, cause it feels like its own thing, but it's not one of my favorite. It's one of my least favorite tracks on this album. Definitely. Um, although I'm sure some people out there really like it. So, you know, and, and if you do, it, I want you to write in and let us know, <laughs> write in and let us know. Yeah. We haven't had any letters for a while. Um, okay. The next song is apples in the trees. And this is the most like indie rock sounding song to me. Yeah. This is the one that feels or, the most like, uh, a holdover from from you think it's like this I can recognize the fear but if you keep on looking up at night the stars will all appear see this It has a little bit of a Liz Fair kind of, uh, you know, guitar drum pattern at the beginning too, or like early cat power. Early cat power is what I was thinking. Yeah. It's got a very like deer. It sounds like rockets a little bit. Um, but I, 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 that, which is my thing. I'm into it. Um, it just, yeah, it's just, but it's pretty good. I would say it is a little half formed. Yeah. I kind of like when it breaks down and there's the, you know, organ, there's like a shimmery chorus guitar. And and then of course there's a chorus, which is very elephant six. Yeah. Um, it's very, uh, in a circulatory system that, uh, we will live forever. And you know, it's true or like hilltop procession or like apples in stereo, et cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> that was, that was incredible. Just lift, let's just listing off. Um, <laughs> The, I mean, Apples and Stereo is an artist, but yeah, like those other two songs have the sing-along, right. you know, at the end of the album. Um, yeah, no, I think it's, I think this is, this is one of the sketches I really like um, because of how it's driving and it's, I think the, the hairpin turns it takes are interesting yeah, I do think having a sing-along is a little... Like, because on those Elephant Six albums, 
like there's so much stuff those albums are very dense so when you have a sing-along at the end it's kind of like okay you know we've been on the it's like being on a drug trip or something and then ending it with like playing acoustic guitars on the campfire or whatever to be corny um whereas it this it doesn't really because it's you know it's a mira album um it doesn't exactly feel earned but it's fine it's funny because yeah it does to me but it's because i it feels like a k records vibe to have a group sing along you know i guess it's yeah. a similar thing as like um uh a couple years a few years after this is when uh mount erie did that um julie dwaran album which has a lot of uh right sing alongs on yeah. it uh, it's not meant to be a strike right. that the, they did the Bjork cover. Yeah. Not, not even a cover. It's just their own song with it that steals that hook. <laughs> right. Okay. Mm. Um, but then uh, the really last song, but second to last song on the track list is uh, Monument. Um, and yeah, it's a folk song. It, it has a nice like finger picked thing on it, which she doesn't really do on the rest of the album. Yeah, I, I actually, I like Monument a lot, but I think it's done a disservice by its placement. It feels like a weird mm-hmm. way to end it to me. Um, I think there's stronger endings on the album. I, I I feel like it's a decent, like, end track or, like, uh, kind of, you know, close to the ending of the album track. Like, it has that kind of closing the book sound to it to me, but it is, like, softer. I mean, it... I don't I think it's barely it's mostly just her voice and the the picked guitar. I do think it's a little bit more of a developed song, so it works better with the more spare arrangement, but yeah, but if you're listening to this album to hear some of the weird, you know, production things or whatever, yeah, you're not going to get it on this song. But the mood is fine. I think it's pretty good. It's fine, but it's I you know, the album at its best gestures towards better things or more interesting ways to end um so mm-hmm. it just it's i think some of its expectation too you know that that's hard to shake because i remember when i came into it initially it was this idea that it was some like full like um this grand piece this grand statement which it's not um no I don't really think she's that kind of artist, or at least I don't think that she's released that kind of I don't I don't think she is either, album. which is one of the things I like about her, but it's also you know, you start with cold, cold water, it feels weird to end here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then technically we have the untitled track, which is just part of the Mount St. Helens, like uh you know, it's just the part of the um when the drum track sort of fades in. Mm-hmm. Um it doesn't detract, it's fine. I guess maybe Maybe she felt like, um, you know, I I, I want to have a little bit more of like a callback to something or I want to have a little bit more like interesting sound stuff going on at the end of this album. But I mean, hearing it outside of the song, you do appreciate uh, the drums and it's a little bit more of an like extended groove than what you actually get in the song Mount St. Helens. So it's not like completely inessential, but it's it doesn't you know it's it's whatever it's an you know it's a decent instrumental yeah, but yeah it's fine it's fine it's it's a it's a weird kind of nothing burger of an ending for an album that is that has some really high highs on it um mm. and some really great mood pieces but feels assembled in a bit of or at least as it goes on feels it almost feels like it's running out of steam it's it feels like 
Yeah. You are you are getting tired. <laughs> yep. Like I think so before no, go ahead. Oh no, no, you you finished. I was just going to say I think it could be like you could cut a couple of songs and it would make the album a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's one or two songs where, you know, when you're listening in it, they kind of blend together, especially towards the middle to the end of the album. I think if she released, like, um, Light the Match as, like, a one-off single, I think that might have worked better. Um, You know, or, like, you know, because it's kind of is a novelty track or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, um, before we rank this album I want to read because I didn't read from the pitchfork review yet. And I do want to say I completely forgot about this, but this was reviewed by Matt LeMay, who not only friend of the show, Matt LeMay. (laughs) Yeah. Our previous, the same year as uh, only a couple months after uh, source tags and codes came out, Matt LeMay comes back with this banger. Also, he reviewed the Liz fair album as we talked about, um, a year after that, the Liz Fair self-titled album. So this is from the review. It's pretty sorry what passes for intimacy and in recorded music these days. Anything with acoust- an acoustic guitar, too closely milked vocal. Or- <laughs> oh, sorry, too closely miked vocals. Love those milked um, vocals. Those milked vocals. <laughs> it's spelled M I K E D. I thought it was spelled M I C. It is spelled M I C. No, he he spelled it wrong. Okay. And lyrics about relationships can garner acclaim as deeply personal, moving, and profound, even when it's about as intimate and deep as a fucking Hallmark card. The funny thing is, like, I kind of agree with him here. Um, Sorry, but a trite, unimaginative confession has nothing to do with intimacy. The most intimate depths of the human mind, even the mind of an obnoxious Midwestern singer-songwriter, are inhabited by things far more interesting than three chords and a little reverb. The human mind is a place of imagination. Grandiose dreams, nagging fears, perplexing memories, and a batch of other insanely complicated thoughts and emotions. It's expressing something so complex through the music is not at all easy. Doing it in a way that's consistently interesting and without ever edging towards self-indulgent experimentation is a serious accomplishment. Um, and then it says, Phil Elvram, the sonic genius behind the microphones, has made a name for himself, making records that are both personal and are inventive. Um, but, uh, well, Elvram's music focuses largely on his role in nature. Mira's second album, Elvram produced album, Advisory Committee, is a more purely introspective affair. I want to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, people love to credit the most successful man in the room uh, with any kind of album like this. And, you know, like I said, Mira played pretty much all the instruments on this album. Well, especially compared to the first album, which was mostly Mira on her four track, which was then like kind of mixed by, by Phil. Like you can, you can draw connections and comparisons through that. Um, I also, the more I, I, the more Matt LeMay reviews we listen to, the more almost sympathetic I am to the fact that we are digging through the trash of, of, the stuff a guy wrote when he was an idiot child. Also, like I'm sympathetic to that opening. Cause even though it's ridiculous, I know that like as a writer, when like I wrote this article about this doom mod, uh, for waypoint, like several years ago. And I know as a writer, it's like, what can I do to make people interested in this that who are not going to be interested in this otherwise. So I think maybe he's trying to do something like that where, you know, like, 
you know, like, oh, you know, you think it's like this, but it's like this. <laughs> <laughs> speaking, speaking of, of her of. album names. Um, yeah, he although he calls that album brutally cloying throughout. <sighs> um, so he doesn't... Um, uh, but yeah, uh, one thing he says here that I do agree with, or is like a you know like a, a typical music writer cliche. He's generally positive on the album. The album gave, gave a, the album got an eight point three. But he also says, of course, maturity, like intimacy and introspection, is a word that far too often <laughs> translates to suck. Uh, I would change that word to boring. When I hear those words, like oh oh, it's mature. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes in my head, I hear oh it's boring. boring. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, in fact, all of these words have been used and abused to the point where they don't mean much of anything anymore. And that's what's so great about advisory committee. When you strip down these adjectives to their purest meaning, they actually do a pretty good damned job of describing the music. Imagine that. I wouldn't call this album necessarily mature. I would call it more like likable and adventurous, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that's correct. Well, I mean, she was like, 20 something she was in her mid-20s when this came out right (laughs) i think i think mature just tended to be associated with like guitar yeah you know it's soft folk guitar albums uh, yeah it's it it brings up bad bonnie ver it brings up i don't want to talk about bonnie ver you know bonnie prince billy memories Ah uh, yes, ah uh, yes. Uh, you know, I don't. I know you. You really don't like him. I like some of his earlier albums, but once he started to get quote unquote mature, mature <laughs> <laughs> I stopped liking them. Yeah, I don't. You know, we don't. We don't need to get into that. But, um, but yeah, that's there's not. I, I I do find it funny that like, like she said, um, a lot of um. You know, it wasn't really uncommon for people in that scene to be out as queer or for women to be, like, sort of more uh, predominant, like, take a more predominant role. But it really wasn't the case anywhere else but maybe Olympia. Mm-hmm. So that shows how much, like, uh, its own, like, ecosystem it was and, you know, how it was able to develop artists like her or Slater Kenny or, you know, like... Um, well, and especially guess, if you think... Moldy Peaches or, If you, you think know, about, like, queer singer-songwriters, you know... Every the all the other big ones would be like Lilith Fair, you know. It'd be Ani DeFranco. Yeah. So like, in even in that, um, that milieu, Mira is like a very kind of unique and much more interesting uh, artist. Yeah. This I found this old review also from the website Pop Matters, and the first line is, "You feel dirty listening to Mira. <laughs> the distinct feeling that you've stepped into someone's private stash of recordings is rarely felt more firmly than listening to Mira." I think part of it is like it mentions her sexuality, and it's like I think there was probably a little bit discomfort with that, which um, I mean, she, which you know because she had kind of a similar sensibility and was doing things similar to like the microphones, she probably didn't get as, you know, get as hard of a criticism from that crowd as, uh, you know, maybe some other artists. Right. But, uh, yeah. So that's, that's advisory committee. Uh, yep. And, uh, where does it rank for you? For me? I think it's going. So, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Sorry. We have put, um, I didn't say this on the last episode, but the album rankings are at the very bottom of the Kitchfork page. Uh, so if you scroll down our album rankings, I will try to keep them up to date. 
each of our album rankings, you can see them there. Um, if you're because you know we talked about them a lot, so I wanted to make sure to have them there. But any anyway, and go it's ahead. also helpful for me. I think I would put it just below "You Forgot It" in people, which would make it break it at tenth out of twelve. Um, okay. which uh, which is or no, um, I would uh make it ninth out of twelve, which I is low but it's it's because it's just not my my favorite mirror <laughs> yeah um it's kind of like i mean it's hard to compare like an album like this to an album like okay the i have it actually number nine as well um i have it below black alicious and above interpol mm-hmm. um and like the thing is like I maybe like listening to this album or find it a little bit more pleasant than listening to all of the Black Alicious album, but it's like, it's weird to compare that because that album is like way more ambitious. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it just feels weird. It would feel weird to like put it above that. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's number nine. And, and, you know, most of the albums that we've talked about are, we generally have a positive opinion on uh, yeah. positive to neutral. So even being number nine on the list is still pretty good. It's you still know? good, you um, know, but it's, it's a bit like how, you know, if we did a Tori Amos album other than little earthquakes, that would be at my number one. Uh, yeah. Like it's, if we did under the pink or, um, uh, choir girl uh, or, or even Pele, like with, with yeah. Mira, like it's, it's, it's less of a statement on Mira as an artist and more of a statement on this album, which I think is a very like transitional album generally like it's it's experimental in a way that kind of bridges the gap between the sort of four track scrapbook of you think it's like this and the you know the more mature acoustic uh come on miracle um so it's it's kind of a it's kind of an odd album to exist and it's very interesting but i don't think it's all there yep so speaking of <laughs> indie songstresses oh god i hate that word i I do too (laughs) speaking of speaking of uh i'm just quoting i'm just quoting a review i'm just quoting a review Mm -hmm. um speaking of speaking of indie uh i think we need to talk about what liz fair said uh yeah this is actually this is already a little dated by the time we're talking about it. Oh, it is. Yeah, and we're so behind already because it's like not only by the time that like news is to where we can talk about it, like it's already passed and it's going to be even more passed because this will be coming out like two weeks from when we're recording. But uh-huh. um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, when the queen died, Liz Fair was like, "Okay, here's what she said." Uh, and she deleted these tweets, but um, archivic.org still exists. So sorry, Liz. Um, I am in no way cool with a post-Queen Elizabeth II world. Don't lecture me about imperialism. She was not an absolute monarch, a system founded by men, and never tried to be. She knew with exquisite precision the bounds of her tricky role, and I adored her for maintaining it so elegantly. So as you can imagine... Uh, that got a lot of people mad at her and, and she kind of doubled down and made it worse by like, she made a tweet that says, I'm sorry, you guys are so angry. <laughs> well, it was like, it was explaining Don't that she's, she's, you know, she, she uh, is older and was, you know, raised a second wave feminist. So like 
There, but I'll, a lot of people, uh, somebody else said like uh i went to oberlin at the same time that she did and uh, angela davis was on our faculty like yeah. this you know this stuff was around you know criticisms of imperialism so i don't think that's an excuse oh i don't think it's an excuse at all i you know but it is an explanation <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then she clarified, she's like, I understand this is not with feminism. It's not congruent with people's experiences, but I looked up to her when I was younger, um, et cetera. It's just like, why, you know, <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I read some of her writing from her book that came out a couple of years ago, and most of it is pretty good. I just think maybe she has some bad political opinions. She grew up pretty upper middle class, so, you well, know, and, and, probably just a lot of unexamined she, assumptions That's the thing is, I, things, she but. doesn't strike me as somebody who thinks a lot about the monarchy or, like, colonialism, yeah. which, like, yeah. <laughs> a lot of musicians, unfortunately, are not really deep thinkers or if they are it's in a very particular way i mean i'm kind of glad that kate bush did not say anything my god i was so I, afraid i was so afraid of what kate bush was gonna say yeah because she did say when Theresa may was like a prime minister that she's doing a good job but then she later you know clarified and says i'm not a fucking tory but you know it, there's a similar like oh you know it's hard to be a woman in power right so. it, the, the 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 girl boss uh Apologist, yeah, um, yeah. I'm very glad. But anyway, that we didn't hear anything from Kate Bush. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, take it for what it is. I, I, I think we should uh, not try to. I think that the irritating thing for somebody who might have been around at the same time as her and struggled to get kind of the attention, or you know, just felt like their kind of worldview or life wasn't represented, to have someone who you know, has some unexamined assumptions that are uh, really frustrating and annoying and, um, you know, wrong <laughs> about things. It sort of feels like when Lena Dunham became very, because I went to, Over she also went to Overland with me and like, um, yeah, when Lena D Dunham became really popular, people were like, oh, she's the voice of the generation. I was like, what? Lena Dunham. You know? I, I feel like that collapsed fairly quickly because <laughs> Lena Dunham it was did. so obnoxious. It did. Um, but so, you know, I don't care anymore, but I, I can see why people would be annoyed or, or, you know, when people who like looked up to her music who, you know, are maybe not from the U S and are from places more affected by the actions of the, uh, the UK. Um, so, but yeah, yeah. you know, it's the th thing with artists in general. A lot of people don't have particularly well-developed or good politics. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, it's just, that is that is the truth. That is a lot of things. Um, so, yeah. what else is on the news docket today? Uh, um, oh, oh, so, uh, my prediction came absolutely yes. true on our previous episode. I mentioned this uh, when I record, because with, uh, just a... The, our previous episode, the um, And You Will Know Us by the Trail of Dead, I had almost finished editing it, and then the file completely corrupted, so I have to redo editing basically the entire episode. But it should be out before you hear this, like a week before. Um, and I probably will put like a little uh, mention of this, but I wanted to talk about this more, um, that um, 
we recorded it before the new like Death's Dynamic Shroud album came out, and I was joking uh, to Jim. I said something like, um, "You know, when your album gets a ten, you know, you can come back on this or, or whatever." And and then we laughed for a second. Then I said, "No, they'll probably just give it a seven, like they give everything right. else." And yes, they did. In fact, review a few days later, a few days after recording. Uh, Pitchfork did, in fact, review the new Death's Dynamic Shroud album, Dark Life, which has caused quite a stir on the Rachel music community. It's rated number 11 in the top albums of 2002. It's a good album. Um, hey, hot take. It's a good album. <laughs> it's a very good album. And actually, hearing, uh, hearing some... it made a lot of what James was saying on the episode, like, oh, now I know what you mean now when you're saying you're, you are inspired by Trail of Dead, because it's very maximalist. Yes, it is very maximalist. Um, but yeah, their first album ever re- uh, reviewed on Pitchfork, they gave it a 7.4. 7. Just like I said. A gentleman's 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they give everything a 7. They give everything a 7. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I just, I, I think it would be so funny, like, you know, because the, they, they did used to, and I mean, it's just reflective of where Pitchfork is that they're not just going to randomly give, if you're not on like a big label, if you're not like a, a, an, an artist that there's already some degree of consensus about, they're not just going to well, throw a 9.5 at you. It feels almost like an inverse of the IGN thing where nothing gets lower than a 7. It, it definitely yeah. feels like nothing gets like over an 8 unless it's extremely like a big deal. Or a reissue. Or a reissue. Well, yeah, reissues have been getting tens left and fucking right. They reviewed the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and gave it a ten again. They, they gave the um the second Wu Tang album like a very high score, <laughs> which was uh, odd to me. Um, yeah, I don't. You know, it's I you we know why it is right. It is it is to to court advertising. You don't want to alienate anybody. Um, and so everything hits a middle ground. Like nothing really gets below a six either. Um, but it is, it does make it like feel silly to read the website. Yeah. I mean, if you're reading it for the reviews, like I understand, and I'm saying this partially because I guess I have a mini feud with a few Pitchfork writers now because <laughs> they got mad at me about a tweet about their like top tracks of the 90s. It wasn't even really about that, but. Um, I'll mention that in a second, but like, it's like, I understand the writers are doing the best job they can. They're writing, you know, the writing is fine. Well, the writers don't usually just pick like, the score. The score is usually picked by the editor. This, yeah, the score, I think the score is like voted on or something like that. It's, or if not that, then picked by the editor. So, um, which I don't think was the case back in the, you know, back like 20 years ago or whatever, but it's also just like, it's not very exciting to read. And I I think the whole idea of pitchfork is that it's supposed to appeal to music nerds. And they have this, like, you know, as much as the person who said that I have a parasocial relationship with, with the website pitchfork, somebody who wrote for pitchfork said that, which I just, think is it's not like we have an uh, entire podcast dedicated to pitchfork. We have a podcast, but like (laughs) the thing is like pitchfork, is you know like it's the same with like enemy or whatever they brand themselves the way so that they have like an editorial voice they position themselves in a certain way and like all these lists that they make all the reviews is like yes we have the definitive take like that's been their thing from day one and that is still their thing when they do those lists they know because they know that it's like 
that's the whole point of doing them is they're trying to kind of like set the canon and set the like norms it's, of where the music discourse is at. So you can't you can't do that and then be like, oh, well, we're just individuals, you know, like because because that's what Pitchfork is, you know, well, you, you know, and I, and I think it's something that's going to be interesting as we explore how like various indie generations after the formation of Pitchfork are very much formed and canonized by what pitchfork decides to put in their lists like it's it is a weirdly influential thing um you know otherwise i can't understand how ariel pink got as big as he did um so like oh we yeah we'll talk about ariel pink eventually you know i I, there's so much about the editorial voice of pitchfork now it feels less unified and more streamlined than ever um Mm -hmm. which i think the list speaks towards and i I would like to believe that's because they're giving free freelancers more more editorial control, but it doesn't compared to other periodicals. It just it just doesn't feel that way, and it feels kind of bland. You know, one of the one of the I nice think, things yeah, about it, it these does, reviews that we're covering, like as embarrassing as some of them are, they at least have a voice. Yeah, I mean, I think we're coming to this. For, like my tweet, by the way, was about how every music writer was over the moon for indie rock at what, how it felt like every indie, uh, every music writer was like totally over the moon for indie rock in like the late nineties and early to mid two thousands. And then every music writer now is like, you know, into pop music and like house, I guess house music has become trendy again. It's like, I don't, I don't think that being into indie rock more so than other genres is a good thing. And I'm not like, I'm not like super hurting for some of these indie bands. I just think it's funny and it's a little embarrassing and it's, it's funny. I was talking to a friend who who's like a former music writer. And what he said is like, I, I think a lot of people are kind of embarrassed, especially people who were around then are kind of embarrassed by like positions that they took now. And like, you know, there is this kind of thing about like, uh, kind of trying to, to, um, to, to resolve cognitive dissonance of like things that you purport to stand for now, like not being the same as like the position that well, you were a part of or what you represented but, in the past. But and, here- <laughs> and I know that like, uh, I, w- the thing that made a lot of pitchfork writers mad, they're like, well, we're not the same people who wrote for yeah. the site 10 years ago. And it's like, I know, I, I know, believe me, I understand. The thing is like, the, the way the site functions is still functionally the same. And anyway, I'm making a comment about a lot of people who were around of the Matt LeMay generation are people who went, you know, who kind of like disavowed the, the space of indie rock bands and kind of went in another direction anyway. So it's, it's not just like a, you know, I'm not just like criticizing, you know, young younger millennials or zoomers or whatever for being into what they're into it's just it's just funny and that's what the whole like the whole big picture of it is what feels disingenuous to me but like i think a lot a few of these writers were just like well you know we're just doing our best and it's like yeah but like and it's the funny thing. The only people who got mad about that, those specific tweets felt like the writers for Pitchfork. Like most well, people, most of the other people seem to understand like what it was talking about. So yeah, I, don't I will know. say I do. I kind of disagree with your point, but I'm not mad about it. The thing that it makes me think of is I had a Rolling Stone issue of like, like the 100 greatest albums of all time from 1988. And on that mm. hundred list of greatest albums of all time was every Talking Heads album released at that point, every mm-hmm. single one. 
Um, clearly, after that fact, that would never happen again, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it's very much like a picture of an era and the writers in that era. And I think that's what well, you I get think... with these lists is you get a picture of the writers in this era. And I, I agree that it's maybe inconsistent, but also Pitchfork has always been inconsistent. You know, it's the same way that an album from the review to the end of year list will get retcon. They've always been like trying to change up their canon to be hipper. I th- I think that's the thing. What you said is true. I think that's the point that I was right. making is that there's no, like the whole point of this podcast and the, the point of how I think about this stuff, there's no, like a lot of these things purported, it's like, we're going to settle the debate. These are the canonical things now, but there's no, like, there's no way to not have that be incredibly defined by the era it's in. So like in the same way that like, music journalism music criticism of like the 2000s was heavily defined by the circumstances at the time the way that people reacted and responded to things and hyped certain artists up you know to a big degree was very much a product of that specific time and place and it's the same way with anything that they post now and i think i think it's just it's just good to have an awareness of how those are shaped by like external factors and especially when you're talking about like for me i think you're talking about like a music industry it's like what is your writing like what position do you represent as a music writer are you somebody who is trying to like oppose like a traditional narrative or a traditional structure of like how a music industry might paint something or are you someone who's kind of there to just kind of echo you know what is out there in the world like there there's this kind of um vein of 2010s criticism it's like um you know i think of that this in terms of video games actually because uh like when something like when a game when the game minecraft will say became very very popular there's so many people who would you know retroactively be like oh this is all the things that they you know like something is retconned into being brilliant because it was successful, if that makes sense. And there is this kind of attitude of like, and I I think this has always been true. So I'm not saying that this is more true now, but um, there is this kind of attitude of like, um, yeah, after something has hit some kind of like um, some kind of, you know, chord where it has a certain amount of fans, enough people are investing in it, then we have to write it. We're obligated to write about it as a cultural phenomena. And I think that's the place that like, you know, the, like the New York times podcast, the pop music podcast, I used to listen to a lot more. I think that's kind of the place that they're coming from. Um, but from the other, another angle, it's like, well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that you're making about like, how organic any of these fan bases or how organic any of the promotion behind these artists were. And I'm really not saying that that wasn't true of indie artists because so many of those artists did have a decent amount of PR and like, you know, some slipped through the cracks who were, who were not like that, but like, especially as the era went on, it's, you know, labels and, you know, whatever that can afford to and have the money to push artists more. But that's something that is a, an assumption that a lot of people make that ab- about things where they it, it's not talked about enough and it really does define like a lot of people's livelihood in the music industry and i think for a lot of musicians like uh who are working in the music industry like these 
lists, unless you really grow up with this stuff, don't really have value because it's just, it's almost speaking to this parallel world that it doesn't correspond with your own world, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you know, it's, um, yeah, I think it's yeah. because this may, this is maybe the first time we are dealing with that in our generation, you know, in the same way that the 80s we think of is different from the 80s that is lived through um, in terms of the mm-hmm. culture. Like, I think... I think it's interesting that that the, the millennial generation is hitting that point as this list is coming out. Um, that music we lived through is being canonized by people who didn't necessarily live through it, and I think that I think it's interesting. Um, and in terms of like you know new voices, I am glad Pitchfork has younger, less white, not all male voices. But I think a big problem with Pitchfork is the editorial staff neuters everything (laughs) so like i don't think the issue is necessarily like the writers and what the writers are doing i think that the editors do a lot of work to kind of neuter any real voice yeah it's it's one thing it's 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 great that there's you know more diverse um you know more women more people of color on the staff that's that's not my complaint but but yeah it is it is boring and i think a lot of people respond to that and like you know i think that's the biggest thing pitchfork in a lot of people have feels like what rolling stone was when pitchfork came out which is a brand that used to be seen as fairly like with it and rebellious and it's since become so institutionalized that it cannot afford to be odd yeah and i think that's the that's the difficult thing it's like even, you know, and people still react it, but, you know, when they gave that Fiona Apple album a 10, like, yeah. you know, yeah, all the people came out of the woodwork to talk about that. But so it's it's like they're still being read, but I, I can see like, you know, this lingering nostalgia for this pitchfork of old, not because it wasn't uh, obnoxious or, um, you know, dominated by certain sensibilities or kind of cringy or whatever, but just because it's uh, more reflective of like, people's passion and and i think that's the thing like with doing this podcast you know we're not coming from a, a fully nostalgic perspective obviously we're making fun of a lot of these old reviews and this scene uh the scenes but it was also like very formative and it's like i i think it's like i think it's just good to be like honest and and understand that like you know like <laughs> People are coming from it, like so much of being into music and performing music is about pa- having passion for things and like feeling passionate about your favorite band and all that kind of stuff. And that's why so much of like music is tends to be marketed towards younger people, too, because they tend to be more passionate about this stuff. So I, I think like just in terms of like reflecting people's the passion that people feel and, and that people want to feel about music, maybe as we get older, like pitchfork doesn't really do that anymore because they are this like institutionalized thing. And that's the frustrating thing. It's like, they don't, we don't have these like big things to really argue about because everything is just kind because of it's, like, it's a, it's a Condé Nast publication, you know, you're not going to, yeah, you're not going to get anything, uh, actively controversial from the people who made Bon Appetit. <laughs> Although I, I mean, I, my friend said that like, this was sort of starting to happen before con- like it isn't, specifically a oh, Condé I'm Nast sure, thing. But um, that's how you get bought by Condé Nast. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I think like it'd just be interesting because like not only is 
like music and the the media industry are in such a bad place right now in terms of like being able to sustain yourself writing about i mean it's the same with like writing about video games yeah and i i should say um, like my or, or, you know i'm a freelance writer my heart goes out to anybody freelance writing for pitchfork uh that is well, not you got you got to get your assignments where you can <laughs> That's what frustrated me so much about like getting into arguments with people on Pitchfork. It's like, it just like, no, I don't know. Like they're not aware. Like, I think a lot of people have this idea of it's like, well, these publications suck. So I'm just doing my time so that I can, you know, pivot to something else, you know? Um, But it's difficult when the, the Pitchfork has not like, there aren't a lot of identifiable writers from Pitchfork, even from the early days. So it's really, really hard to do that. Um, and like, you know, develop your own brand or whatever that, you know, it's you know like, but well, it's uh, less about developing your own brand and more about developing a portfolio that you can send. When yeah. You're uh, but I, I know what but, you mean. It, it's, it yeah. sucks. I mean, we're going to talk about animal collective in a bit, but the, the state of indie music right now is in such a way that, Nobody can make nobody can make a living anymore at all. Um, yeah, and I, I think it, a big part of that is actually something that Pitchfork did, which is essentially shut out or like monopolize the field so much that no other publication can function. You know. Yeah, well, and it helped indie become like a successful brand, which then sort of became stale and became its own like kind of you know, like new urbanist aesthetic of gentrification uh, that a lot of people... It becomes embarrassing. Yeah. It becomes dad rock. You know, whenever I see, um, oh gosh, Modest Mouse is going to be performing Lonesome Crowded West or Pavement is on another <laughs> reunion tour, I get depressed. It, it feels like the yeah. Eagles going on their 87th reunion tour. You know, like it's... It does, yeah. That is kind of what indie culture has devolved into are these institutions... Uh, and and w- are like, what are the institutions and brands that survived? You know, and a lot of those are canonized yeah. by Pitchfork, and a lot of those, in turn, they're appearing on Alamo Drafthouse bumpers. Yeah, yeah, it's a bummer. You know, it it, it happens to every you know it happens to every generation. I get that, uh, but it's a bummer. It it's it doesn't make it not a bummer, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it just it's so hard. I think that's the difficulty is like. For me, it's hard to envision being a music writer uh, at this day and age um, and not uh, sort of making the situation with the music industry and how difficult it is for artists to sustain themselves and um, the kind of inherent politics of like, you know, cult of celebrity, cult of, you know, being very interrogating that very it's hard for me to imagine envision being a music writer and not like wanting to do that because it seems so crucial to like understanding and preserving music culture. Cause it's not just about like, like I don't really have, I don't care if an artist is on a major label or they're a mainstream pop artist, but really what it is is like preserving people's excitement and preserving the ability for people to like, make this their lives in one way or another. Maybe it's their livelihood. Maybe it isn't, you know, but like just have a community that they're excited about to participate in things for it to not have to be the biggest deal ever for you to not have to like, you know, completely upend your life and put everything, uh, put it all in for like a music career. I mean, like I, 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 there, there's gotta be a space I will for say that. To, to, 
I'm sure a lot of writers want to write about that. But, yeah. you know, what are the publications you can write for right now? Um, yeah. You know, there's Bandcamp, which is a fairly diverse, like, uh, publication, but they're not going to write about that because Bandcamp's whole thing is a business model uh, of selling music. Yeah. You know? There's Pitchfork and Stereo Gum, which have an editorial board that aren't probably aren't going to let you really get opinionated about it. Um, like, yeah. I've had it happen where I write like fairly opinionated articles that get neutered in the edit- editing process. Um, so I don't, yeah. I don't doubt that these writers probably want to be talking about more than they can. And the problem is that the the world of music writing is so deeply monopolized that its mm-hmm. alternative voices have very have almost nowhere to go. Yeah, and I mean that's the problem in general. Is I, I mean, there's been increasing news uh, articles about like fairly big name artists just quitting touring because they can't make a profit yeah. off of the it. Animal I, Collective I, thing first just there dropped was, today. <laughs> yeah, Animal Collective just dropped today. They had to cancel their UK uh, and European tour because they weren't making a profit off of it because, and that's because of like a lot of reasons. I mean. Less people have been going to shows, like, in general, like, post-COVID, but it's also so many times where artists have gotten sick and had to cancel, and then they have to pay back, like, the venue, and so, like, they have to refund the well, venue. And, so, and also, like, it, it's worth saying that indie musicians, even big ones, even ones that are, like, you know, talked about in the big publications and, and all this stuff touring as an indie band operates on such slim margins and anything going wrong can put everything in the red. You know, I, when I was like, when I've toured with like fairly popular indie bands, the goal was to break even, (laughs) you know, like, like touring hasn't, touring hasn't been super lucrative for a while, but like even for, you know, animal collective, who's a, a, a pretty storied institution in indie rock. Um, when we get to that point where even these guys cannot make money on a tour, like that's, that's the, the industry's bad. Y'all the industry's really bad. Well, that like rep because like animal collective represents so much of that, like indie success. Like they are basically the pitchfork artists of the two thousands. They are the artist that like embodies that almost more than any other artist that you can think of. And so a- anybody who's in that space, seeing that, the- that even they can't afford to do it tells you so much. I, this other artist, uh, Santa gold, yeah. um, canceled her tour recently as Which well. Was, she, um, she's, you know, hasn't been as big in the um, scene as consistently as Animal Collective, but Santa Cold is big. I mean, she wrote was very she wrote very yeah. successful singles. She's also very good. I would love to talk to a Santa Cold episode at some point, but like, yeah, that's a huge bummer, <laughs> and it's it's bad for it's, everybody. It, it means there's it makes it harder to make a living as a musician. Period. It means there's no shows for people to go to. Like, it sucks. It makes me wonder, like, how much the the sort of Minutemen We Jam Econo thing went from kind of like a survival mechanism of people who don't have a lot of money and who are just trying to, you know, survive to a like you have to do this if you're oh, touring, you have to scrape the bottom. It absolutely That's like is. The it's why most most indie bands are first and foremost t-shirt salesmen. Like that mm-hmm. is the highest margin you're getting on a tour that's the sweetest it's the sweetest, the sweetest pie. plum 
the sweetest yeah. one as, as Krusty, Krusty the, the clown. clown. Yeah, but it's it's you know everything else. Yeah, you have to jam a Kano. You know you. Um, you get a shitty van, you fit everybody in it as you can, and you like eat Taco Bell the whole way down. Like it's, it's, and everything's gotten so expensive. You know, one of the things that really cut into tour profits is gas. Like the yeah. price of gas. I, I think it's always so strange to me. I think I talked about this in another episode. Maybe I didn't, but like, like, in ga- in video games, there are a lot of people who are have various levels of like disability involved because you know it's just a a, a space where you know, a lot of people are working remotely, etc. So when uh, conventions started opening up um, uh, post COVID, a lot of people were very upset with like you know kind of lax uh, and, and which is only increased now for certain you know for a lot of people. Um, with kind of lax like COVID uh, mitigation things. But like, it was interesting for me to think about because it's like, if you look at the, the, because a lot of people are like, well, I feel like I can't exist in this industry. And it's like, it's totally true and it's fucked up. But that's the thing. Like, if you look at music, like you can't be disabled and do this. Like, like you just can't do it. it, it, People have talked about this a lot. Like it sucks. No, like and no and yeah it is like something that is like almost an unexamined assumption like you have to do x and y to do it and if you have these things you're not you're not able to tolerate like all the things that comes with that you just you can't just do can't, it yeah. you're just not even allowed to be part of the well, space not to mention all. like you're, most like affordable diy spaces aren't accessible <laughs> yeah like, it's it's hostile and it, it yeah it's just I could go on for like hours and hours about how shitty the scene is right now. But I think like the thing about Santa Gold and Animal Collective is like, this has been a problem for a while and you know, like it's getting bad when even like the biggest quote unquote indie names just can't, just can't do it. It does make, it does feel like things are almost coming full circle because like the era that we're talking about of about 20 years ago was when, uh, record sales started to go down and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people blame piracy. It's like, I'm sure it had something to do with it, but a lot of it is also because like the CD boom was a bubble. Well, it's, and also because <laughs> um, what people don't talk about enough and what I blame way more than piracy is CDs getting shitty, shittily expensive. Like they, yeah. they were charging like 200% markups on CDs. It would cost you 20 bucks yeah. to get an album. 20 bucks to get an album when, you know, it's like costs, unlike vinyl, which is actually expensive to, to yeah. produce, especially at this yeah, point, because there's so few vinyl so it, plants. It's absurd but. of them to be like, oh, no, you know, like, like you were, they were charging huge markups. It was not affordable. <laughs> it's like a dollar to, it costs a dollar each CD yeah. or something like that to make or a dollar or two. So, yeah, it's, so I think that because of that, a lot of artists in the 2000s started really making their money on touring. And that's when that shift really started to happen. Uh, because, you know, in the, in the 90s, that's, the music industry was kind of going through a boom because of CD sales and all that kind of stuff. So right when the era we're talking about is when the shift to like, okay, you need to play live, that's how you're going to sustain yourself, really, really started. And now we're kind of coming full circle back on the like, okay, this is no longer sustainable now. Now what yeah, do we do? There's no, and there, you know, there's no album sales because streaming, there's, there's nothing you can do. You know, people, 
I mean, you can buy Bandcamp albums from Bandcamp Daily. Oh, and, as an you audience, know, like you, all you that kind of stuff. Absolutely, should buy albums off of Bandcamp. Um, but like, should buy my albums and Max's yes, albums on Bandcamp. Please, we'll we'll we'll, we'll link them. <laughs> Noise Dash Land Bandcamp. But like, but the thing is, it's like, um, it's it's almost feels like it's a like a niche cottage, and like buying an album on Bandcamp is like buying a gunpla. You know, it's like the the dedicated yeah. hobbyists do it um i don't know the industry's industry's broken it's it's why stuff like the umaw is so important yeah actually um speaking of which damon krakowski uh formerly of galaxy 500 and, also of damon and yes. naomi uh, um was just posting about this um today let me find his tweet uh so damon is uh, heavily involved, or I think might have helped start uh, the the UMAW you know, Union of Musicians and Allied Workers. He posted today, every musician facing issues touring, we need to make recorded music economically viable again. Join us as UM, join us at UMAW. We're working hard to change this for all of us. So this is union propaganda, but seriously. But, but, like, but this I'm, is I'm not afraid to say this podcast is union propaganda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> not afraid Absolutely. to say it. Um, the, uh, they've introduced a bill to like increase streaming revenues. I mean, there's something has to like the, the whole <laughs> landscape of music has to change. Um, but, and, and artists need to start being involved with these things in order to, you know, but I, I also, um, Damon K, uh, Krakowski also did an interview recently on the money for nothing podcast, which is a very good podcast. Um, uh, by a, a friend of uh, my friend David Turner is has been on there once or twice and he's friends with them uh, the the people who do it um, but they just had a, an interview well I shouldn't say just had it but they had an interview with Damon Krakowski and he talks about the Union of Musicians and some of kind of his background um, so I, I really recommend checking that out and um, and checking out um, this uh, podcast because he's like one of the few people who I, I feel like has the him and like Zola Jesus, although she's very like black pilled on Twitter about, about music um, are, are some of the few artists that I feel like are being really open and being like very open agitators about this thing, which I can relate to because that is my personality. Oh, yeah. no, I mean, it, it's getting, yeah, it's getting a bigger thing uh, more and more, but it's far from, it you be, know, it that. so I, I <laughs> it, it does make me like, I don't know. I'd I'd be interested to try and get I, I will say with him to do an interview. Former guest Audrey and uh, Sadie Dupuis from the band that Audrey's in are very active members. Excellent. Yeah, there are a lot of people who are involved. Um, we should. I I really do think we should try and like do some bonus episode like interviews or something. You know, like thirty minute interviews or something like to. that as bonus yeah. episodes. I think that would be great. Um, so I I haven't like you know thought about that yet or anything but like i think it would be um i don't know it's just funny to me because when i was looking up uh interviews with mara the most recent album or the her the most recent interview with her was actually done on just somebody's like music podcast it's called the indie heads podcast mm -hmm. that isn't even particularly popular so that's like that's those are the kinds of people who are who are probably uh, uh interviewing these artists now so we need to get on in on that train it would be nice we can't we, we we we've gotten our beaks wet with death's dynamic shroud and we have to 
yeah push it even further but yeah um there isn't really much else to say i mean um yeah i don't uh, know I'm, uh, I'm i'm excited about the album we're doing next week <laughs> yes uh so we were gonna do another album that we're gonna put off and uh, the artist we're gonna put off until later because I wanted to go back to the like indie hip hop scene of the early 2000s that we were talking about with Black Alicious. So our next album is from the from Filthy Tongue of Gods and Griots by Dalek. Yes, uh, one of the best albums, best hip hop albums of 2002. Uh, absolutely a precursor for the uh, you know noisy no wave rap era that that Death Grip would pioneer later on. Like. It is mm-hmm. absolute classic album. I'm very excited to talk about it. I have never heard this, but it seems up my alley, so I'm excited to talk about it as well. That's great. So, yeah. So, uh, and, yeah, as I said, um, we don't have any letters as far as I can... I'll check one more time, but... Oh, we do have Wait, a letter. Do? Oh, great. Someone, Yeah, someone just sent this yesterday. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hey, Liz and Max, this is from Nate Kiernan. Hey, Nate. Uh, hey, Liz and Max, love the show. It's been a welcome chance to revisit and reevaluate the soundtrack of my teenage years. Wanted to hear your thoughts on a correlation between internet media economics and the emergence of poptimism. Oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, it feels like the reevaluation and elevation of pop music and movies uh, parallels the increasing precarity of media sites due to their reliance on click-based incomes. Obviously, there are other factors in play, but I wondered what your thoughts were on the relationship between people going to bat for corporate art and the necessity of covering it to stay employed. A bit of Stockholm criticism, maybe. It's interesting because Poptimism, when it initially came out, was very much a reaction to hipster culture. Um, Yeah. So, which was much more of a big cash cow, you know, at the time. Um, I, I, I haven't thought about it as like, being like dr- now further driven by uh clickbait media but i can definitely see it i think it kind of is for a lot of things at this point i mean maybe not like you know i'm sure there are a lot of music writers who are always interested in covering pop music so i won't say that it is like I, I, it's it's less, you know purely it's less that interesting and subversive to write about pop music now than it was a decade ago um yeah i mean if there is a big album coming out from a big artist like it's like i don't know it makes me think of games criticism too it's like if a gta or new uh elder scrolls game is coming out that's gonna be your fucking career you know that's gonna be what you're concentrating on for the next several months because that's what people are gonna read so i do think that there's some level of that definitely just because it's an occupational thing and 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 and, and like with click based media i could see that um but yeah i i i, I it maybe necessarily didn't start that way but you know. yeah it didn't start that way but it's i can definitely see it being further driven by the, i mean you know pitchfork fully 25% of pitchfork is taylor swift articles at this point you know so like yeah it it's God. hard to it's hard to separate those for sure um, how much of a site is this just, is this just counter counter culture forever? Like we're just going to keep, uh, reacting yes. against our own biases until the, the yeah. sun burns out. <laughs> well, we're getting into, we're getting we're into to dark band camp noise albums now. <laughs> 
and then when that becomes too popular we'll get into uh twee music when twee music becomes unpopular yeah uh and then when that becomes too popular then we'll get into what what uh, was it there's that um calvin and hobbs comic where you know he was talking about like Oh, rebelling against punk music by playing easy listening music, which is just vaporwave. Yeah, it's just vaporwave. If they could predict yeah. it back then, we can predict this now. We just have to do some 4D chess. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, Nate says, um, I don't see many people talking about Pitchfork's coverage shift, but I think it speaks to a change in how media in general has been covered that is really fascinating to me. I mean, like, again, I think if you look back in Rolling Stone in the 90s and 80s, maybe you know, they maybe had some of the same problems. Like, I think there is a thing of like, if you're at a big, more corporate publication, you're always expected to write about those things because that's what you're you're serving as the kind of a voice du jour of like the music industry or or representing like what that is. That's absolutely true. And I I, I think, um, you know, to get back to the, the controversial point, I think, the list Pitchfork is putting out about the 90s now compared to their original 90s list is a good indication of that shift of that, like the shift of that Overton window over to like the the more mainstream side of things. Although the 90s albums list was wasn't that uh, I, I, they did bump a lot of albums way down that they would put way higher up. But like a lot of the same stuff was on that that list. Um yeah. Oh, oh. And Nate also says, would love to hear you cover Modest Mouse's moot in Antarctica. I remember the review being absolutely ridiculous. It yes, is. we will cover that. To, yeah. um, we are going to recover. Uh, we're going to cover a different Modest Mouse album before that. Uh, but we will cover this. That one that I eventually. bet you could that guess. That might be one of our. <laughs> yeah. That one might be one of our big milestones. I haven't thought about like what to do for episode 20 or 25 or episode 50 or 100, but we 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 should think about like what we want our big we're milestones get, to we're be, getting I guess. Up there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, eventually we're getting up there. Um, um but yeah. Uh so yeah, check out uh <laughs> advisory committee if you want. It's good. Uh, it's a good it's album. Good. I would I I I would check out uh, you think it's like this, but it's really like this even more. Yeah. Um, and yes, please rate and review us uh, on Apple Podcasts. Also, you can send us an email at kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, yes, absolutely. Lo- I was very happy to discover this this message because I hadn't gotten any in a while. So, um, And yeah, uh, so I have been your co-host, Liz Ryerson. Uh, I've been your other co-host, Max Cohen. And uh, you don't have to wait until you die because uh, there's a lot of other stuff that's going to happen before then, including listening to this podcast. Okay, that wasn't great. <laughs> We're keeping stick it. around no. if we'd all stick around. And here's a question that's been tested. Tell me if we sleep together, would it make it any better? If we sleep together, would you be my friend forever? If we sleep together,